Welcome to Women Waken, a podcast that helps you heal spiritually from trauma in relationships, childhood, and early life conditioning to shift from a place of codependency to a state of divine feminine love, acceptance, harmony, and abundance. On Women Waken, we begin the journey to waken from the illusion of needing to prove our worth into the divine experience of knowing our worth. I'm your host, Whitney Walker. I'm a licensed mental health therapist, and I specialize in substance abuse, addiction, eating disorders, trauma, and spirituality. I'm also a fellow human being who has faced most of the issues that I address on this show. On today's guest episode, I welcome the remarkable Alicia Deva. Alicia is an interdisciplinary thinker who has been researching social inequality for 30 years. She is now the author of the recently released Before War on Marriage, Hierarchy, and Our Matriarchal Origins. Alicia shares all about what she's learned in writing this phenomenal book that sheds incredible light on the reality of history and both women and men's place in the development of the society that we see before us and how we can begin to move into a new way of living and dispelling all the old myths. So take a listen and enjoy. Hi, Alicia. Welcome to the Women Awaken podcast. It's so great to have you here, Alicia, and I'm so excited to talk to you. We connected a little while back. I think I actually found you, maybe it was when I first joined Facebook a few months ago. I had been off Facebook for a long time and I came across your work in writing about sort of illuminating and shedding light around the truth about the history of the matriarchy and of women and their place in society, which to say politely has been expressed inaccurately. Yeah. (laughs) Would you agree? Okay. Absolutely. So Alicia, you're an interdisciplinary thinker and you have been researching social inequality for 30 years. And you're now the author of the amazing book, Before War, on marriage, hierarchy, and our matriarchal origins. So would you mind just jumping in and telling us what is this book about? What has your research been focused on starting there? Yeah. So like you said, this book is about the real history of Western civilization in contrast to the distorted version we learn in school, because history is written by the conquerors, you know, so they say, in a way that makes them look like the good guys, in a way that justifies the conquest, and in a way that keeps them in power to this day. So we grow up with this assumption that you somehow inherit through the ethers that men have always been in charge, that men have always done everything of, of importance in history, Um, moving everything along, invented everything, while women have done nothing except for raise the children. Of course, that's a huge thing, but only that and like make sandwiches and like get dragged around by the hair, right? That's kind of what we assume, you know, from the cartoons and and what we learn in school. Um, But this is a big lie. Um, Unlike what someone like Jordan Peterson might say, you know, who, and by the way, to put it out there, my, my biggest goal in life is to debate Jordan Peterson, because he basically says that 
status hierarchies are inevitable and natural, and the evidence just does not bear that out. So it's hard to see the big story if you just look at one piece of the picture, like just the archeology. span And of course we don't have history back then. Um, there, there, there was writing before patriarchy, but we don't have the ability to read those script systems. So what we do have is archeology, span anthropology, linguistics, zoology, genetics, and then the little things that have survived into the historical period. So when you look at all of that taken together, it gives you a very accurate picture of what things were like before what I call the patriarchy package arose around 3500 BC. So tell us what, what is the general thesis of your book? So you, uh, I mean, this is kind of a twofold question, but how did you get into this topic? What floored your interest? I know because I've already started reading your book, but for the listening audience who haven't had the delight of experiencing the book, what got you into this topic? And then what is the th thesis? What did you really decide? Okay, this is what I want to hammer in on besides debating Jordan Peterson about the idea of hierarchy always existing in systems. What is it that really floored you and what has been your mission statement through this book? Yeah. So when I was growing up, I always felt like something was just wrong. Something was off. Why is it that we drop bombs on innocent people to solve conflicts? Like that's just not right. Why are we destroying the environment and spilling oil in the oceans? Why is it that boys are so mean to girls? And why is it that I'm expected as a girl to like clean up after dinner while my brother is part of the conversation? Like all these things just didn't add up and it make me, made me feel like something was wrong with the world. And then when I was 22, I read The Chalice and the Blade, which is like this earth shattering classic book by Rianne Eisler that was at the time said to be like the most important book since um, Darwin's Origin of the Species. And she lays out, she basically rewrote history based on the work of an important archeologist, Maria Gambutas, and traced through history how men came to take over the world and what it was like before then, which, so, and my book is basically a follow-up to hers 30 years later with all the new evidence for her thesis, which is the same as mine, which is basically that before 5000 BC, when patriarchy began, there's only very sporadic evidence for violence or for static status hierarchies. And that the, what I call the patriarchy package, which is basically war, male dominance, class dominance, ethnic tensions, and, and basically sex shaming, a sex negative attitude, all of that goes hand in hand together with violence and oppression. And all that really began around 3500 BC as a probably, we don't know why, but as a response probably to extreme trauma caused by very rapid drought situation, that started around 4,000 BC, in which the whole area from North Africa into the Middle East and into Central Asia became a desert where it was once lush, like very quickly, um, and which must have been very traumatic. And so it seems that the combination of drought and extreme trauma and a pastoral lifestyle, which kind of goes along with drought because it's hard to have agricultural lifestyle, um, set the conditions for this seismic shift in human life. Like, like in a way, this, this shift from, we call it, we can call it matriarchy, although a lot of people think matriarchy means oppressing men. And I'm kind of reclaiming that to just mean that women were 
you know, of, of primary importance. Um, the shift from matriarchy to patriarchy was really the, the biggest shift in, in human life, even bigger than the shift to agriculture, which wasn't quite as seismic as some people think. Like a lot of people went back and forth. Um, so this was, this was a massive change in humanity that, that happened around that time. But before that, we lived in matrilineal clans, which means that you traced your, your lineage through the mother, from mother to daughter. Like a man would describe himself as the son of a mother, daughter of mother, daughter, 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 as opposed to in the Bible, um, you know, son of, son of, son of. And they lived in basically matrilineal longhouses, a clan where the grandmother and the aunts would help raise the children. And the primary male that helped raise the children was the mother's brother. And so the, the mother's brother basically played the role of father because there were no fathers, basically. It was not of concern who fathered the child. And people were a lot more polyamorous, basically, um, because there was no need to, to note who the father was. It just, you know, you just knew who your mother and your aunts were and your uncle. And this was a much more stable structure for the children. You know, up to this day, there are still hundreds of matrilineal um, cultures in, in every continent of the world, mostly surviving up in the hills where they have sort of survived being assimilated or conquered into patriarchy. And it's a much more stable, peaceful structure with a lot less sexual morality because the whole purpose of sexual morality is to ensure paternity. In order to know who your father is, you have to control the sexuality, at least of the woman. And that's what leads to psychopathology. It's not that male dominance leads to war and violence because men are bad. I don't believe men are bad. I love men. It's just that sh sex shaming and, and suppressing our natural sexual urges leads to, to psychopathology, which, which leads to, to, to violence and sort of psychological issues. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those are important components and aspects of social life to look at and consider. You know, I, I've heard the notion that things like assault and rape and attack wouldn't exist if we didn't suppress for a long, long time in the history of the human species our natural sexual feelings and urges, that it really has almost been perverted. Sex by nature is not perverse. It's a beautiful thing. It's for procreation. It's expressing love. But it's in a way like, unfortunately, a lot of things in our world has been perverted into a twisted idea because, you know, whether it's it's through various faith-based ideas or through cultural ideas that where some things are wrong and some things are right. Exactly. And those faiths that you're talking about are patriarchal faiths, which pretty much all the ones we know of now are you know, the, the original religion was, was the goddess, you know, for a hundred, you know, probably a hundred thousand years, mm -hmm. you know, but we have, we have like goddess figures going back hundreds of thousands of years, these sort of busty hippie female figurines. And for at least a hundred thousand years, people have been burying their dead with red ochre sprinkled on the graves. And we know from modern hunter gatherers who still practice that, that that is a symbol of, of menstruation. So if that was, was holy, 
Um, we know that everything to do with the feminine and fertility was was holy and sacred. And so with this huge shift, it's like everything became backwards. Instead of the feminine and menstruation and birth being holy, it all became unclean and dirty. And instead of sex being sacred, it became, you know, unclean and, and naughty. Yeah. So Alicia, there was, when that book came out, Chalice and the Blade, there was a pretty big surge. Was that, was that in the eighties even that this became sort of brought to light? It was 1987 that it was published. Okay. And then over the next really decade, it kind of got going more in the nineties her work kind of got popularized by, it basically sparked um, the neo-goddess feminist movement. So the 90s was like, I remember it as being a really great time for feminists and for women and for this kind of like neo-pagan goddess movement. Um, unfortunately, that's what got the whole topic shut down because once all of this research became popularized by, by you know, bra-burning feminists and pagans, um, academia had to shut it down. Why? Well, academia, it, one of the main themes of my book is that academia is extremely dogma-based and it really is about maintaining the status quo. So unfortunate, people like to think that, that science and academia are really objective that's not the case at all. There's there's very specific dogmas, and it's they're they're defended by the sort of establishment academics whose careers are based on them, and so politics plays a huge role. So in the 90s, you know, there Maria Gimbutas, who was the archaeologist who discovered all of this matriarchal civilization, she was rivals with. This, this guy, Sir Colin Renfrew, who was sort of like the, the old Lord English head of, of the sort of archaeology establishment. And they were having, there was this debate that went back 250 years that I talk about a lot in the book, this debate about where the Indo-European people came from or the Indo-European languages, homeland. And it's very much tied in with patriarchy because most Europeans today got patriarchy via being colonized or with contact with the Indo-Europeans. So, um, but for 250 years, ever since they discovered that Sanskrit and Latin were connected, and then they realized that Northern Indian languages were actually very, very closely related to Indo-European, to, Indo to European languages, that led to this realization that there was some original population that were the ancestors of Europeans and Indians. And there's this huge debate about where they came from. And it was very political because it was sort of about also who were the originators of civilization. So Maria's rival, so Maria Gimbutas, this Lithuanian archeologist who, who basically over 50 years of doing archeological digs discovered this matriarchal civilization she was, her rival was Sir Colin Renfrew, and he believed that Indo-European languages originated in, in Europe and, and the East, and that basically these were the ancestors, the, the originators of civilization. Whereas she was saying that the Indo-Europeans were actually primitive thugs 
who only knew about war and basically appropriated civilization from the women that they raped and enslaved. And that really wasn't acceptable to the, the academic orthodoxy, or that's not what Europeans want to hear. They want to believe that, that, you know, those ancestors were the ones who invented civilization, not that just swooped down and, and like stole it. So um, he shut her down, basically just the way it's usually done in academia with a few well-placed insults, misogynistic slurs, like, oh, Maria must be so obsessed with fertility goddesses because she's going through menopause. And next thing you know, everyone in academia is distancing themselves from her to this day. Her, she's basically, you don't speak her name in academia or you won't be taken seriously, despite the fact that before the feminist movement adopted her work, she was one of the most respected archaeologists of all time. And none of her work has ever been disproven. And in fact, to his credit, her rival, Sir Colin Renfrew, in 2017, gave a speech where he said that she was right and he was wrong and that she, her work was magnificently vindicated, in his words, by the DNA evidence. And that's the most exciting thing that's happened over the last 10 years is the DNA evidence has proven all of this stuff that nobody wanted to look at which is basically that there was a massive rape and colonization event 5,000 years ago in which the Indo-Europeans basically killed all the men, all the indigenous men of Western Eurasia or prevented them from passing on their genes. The genetics just says that they replaced them genetically, which is a pretty big story. And you'd think that we would learn this in school, but you know, it's politically difficult to talk about, but the genetics is all kind of bringing all this stuff up. So for the first time in 25 years, since Maria got shut down, this is all being spoken of again by, by the geneticists who are telling the story as if they invented it, leaving Maria out of it <laughs> and not mentioning what it must've been like for the women. They're going, oh, it must've been so sad for those men not to pass on their genes. And I'm thinking, well, what would it have been like for women to have been, you know, taken as sex slaves, but were all descended from Indo-European men and the indigenous who were basically Mediterranean women are the ancestors of Europeans. And that's a lot of powerful information. And I, I can imagine how that can feel so revelatory in these past 10 years, because it's, it's bringing to light the actual truth of what our history is. And, and I, you know, I'm sure you would agree that it, it's probably just a small fraction of greater truth about why we are where we are today. And I, I'm a big believer in truth because I think it does shed light on what, how we do get to where we are. Cause just like you, I sort of came into this world looking around and saying, what is going on here? What's wrong with this place? What are we say that we want to be kind and happy, but most of us are miserable and depressed and don't like ourselves. We say we want peace, but all we do is fight. And that's all we're told is the only way to resolution. And it's not to say that I, you know, it's easy to simplify it. You know, there are great wars and there's been great violence and people think, well, we just, we need a way out of it. However, you're presenting the idea that's been presented before, right? But that, yes, that 
the mess we're in now, but more of the same is not going to ever resolve it. If it was, then we would have resolved war and violence by now, right? We've, God knows we've had so much of it. So in your eyes, Alicia, what is, what is it that you're fighting for that you'd like us to work towards? What is, do you have a vision of the way that life can be, the way that society can be one day when we're able to admit to the fact that it doesn't have to be like this? that the hierarchical system is not integral to human life, to human societies, that we can shed light and honor what actually led us to where we are today and shift the narrative and shift the story to something different. And that we can have agreements resolved and tensions attended to without violence. Yeah, in the final chapter, I kind of go through my my ideas for how we can shift. But in my view, the, the first step is just to have everybody know that, like you said, violence and, and, and oppression isn't part of humanity. There's sort of this assumption that it is our, our nature. And if you believe that, then you might as you're like, oh, well, fuck it. Then this is sorry. This is the way it has to be. Um, we might as well drop the bombs ourselves because if not, someone else is going to do it. So first off, just understanding our past, we know that we can do better. And so one step would be to um, like on a, on a family level, um, like to, to, to sort of start unpacking and on an individual level to unpack the ways that each of us individually dominate other people. So how is it that I am abusing my power um, when I'm in a position of power and to stop doing that? And how is it that that we can each individually feel better about ourselves, like for women, to, to know that we're not in, inherently inferior? And so that's just like part of our own growth to, to unpack that. So for me, it really, when I understood our true history, I became a lot less insecure about my body or my looks and all those things that women are made to feel insecure about. Um, and for men, men have all these insecurities around performance and, and being the providers and that whole paradigm of men, the providers, and the protectors is only 5,000 years old. Like before that, both men and women were providing. The whole clan provided for the whole clan. And now it's all coming out just in the last couple of years um, that women hunted as well. So in addition, and gathering was a huge thing. So to just start to unpack the insecurities that we have that is part of patriarchal conditioning, that's what each of us can do. And then on a family level to sort of unpack this nuclear family, like nowadays there seems to be this return back to like, oh, the man and the woman and the father and the nuclear family. And it's actually not working for most people. And so I believe that if you, if you wish to have children, and that's something that there's a lot of patriarchal condition around having children to do it just for the sake of it, because God says so, or because there's nothing else to do, or that's my true worth of as a woman, but really to choose it consciously and say, I'm having children because I feel called to nurture the next generation and maybe even have a ceremony around it and to have a contract. Like instead of having a legal contract around a relationship, 
have a contract around co-parenting and make that your your main thing that you're doing together because that's what's important like whether or not you have sex with this person only for the rest of your life what's it's really about the children and creating a stable home for them and so consciously co-parenting and separating that from your sexual relationship you know so the first and foremost you know you choose a partner that you have the same values for child raising and really start to think about moving the family money towards either the mother towards the woman in the fam the girls in the family or if the man wants to have have children like towards him but as opposed to sort of having the men inherit if the women are going to raise the children you know finding ways to to move money towards that and kind of recreating these woman-centered families and intentional communities so getting out of this this system this sort of rat race and moving into communal housing and communal child raising um, that, that's not dependent on a fragile sexual bond, which doesn't usually last for life, you know? And then on a, a grand level, all the money that we spend on these horrible bombs and wars and weaponry, moving that towards there being having enough resources, because if patriarchy is linked to, to limited resources, how do we just put all of our resources into making there be enough for everybody and find another way to resolve conflict? Maybe have a computer run a simulation of what a war would look like and agree to abide by that instead of actually dropping the bombs. But I'm just dreaming here. It's good to dream. We need to dream. That's how we build the future. We dream it into being. And I'm just such a big believer and proponent that I, I don't see any limitation. I think that certain people will claim to be realists and say, well, this is just the way it is. And it's always, there's always going to be war and fighting, but you know, we are able to recreate our life anytime, but we just choose to keep creating the same scenarios and situations over and over and over again, refusing to admit that they do not work. Just as you were speaking to Alicia is that so many sectors of our society are, it's like, they're trying to, to fall apart intentionally. They, they're falling apart anyways, but to say like, this does not work. There, there's a housing crisis for a reason. It doesn't work for every single person to try and create single family homes and have one. It's not working anymore. People like right. my generation, I, I having a home feels like a pipe dream. I don't know when I'd have that kind of money. I don't even want it though. Like right now I'm a nomad. I'm happy with that life. I like, you know, novelty and change and traveling. But if I did, I don't know where I'd get that from. Take out more money from the bank. You know, after most of us have already taken money out for student loans, all of these systems are, they're serving a certain sector and nobody else, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and everything exactly. is showing and indicating that this does not work. You spoke to the nuclear family and, you know, it's an, a whole epidemic of people who are doing what they're supposed to do, but who's really benefit or who's really enjoying this, right? People are depressed and they're anxious and we have to ask why. It's because mm. we're not living in a way that's most functional or natural to human beings. Mm. Exactly. And that's, that's kind of the point of the book is to show that this isn't natural and how can we just sort of transition to, to something that would be more natural, which is basically group childcare, you know? Yes. A village communities where it's village. not, all, the burden isn't all on the mother and father, the paternal you know, biological mother and father who, you know, from what I've read, there's been ancient civilizations where 
whoever birthed the child, yes, they can connect with them, but they don't feel that burden that it's all on them, that there actually are cultures where the elder, because they're older and wiser and they're mature, they raise mm-hmm. the children. I think we also, you know, it's a pretty big crisis that a lot of people having children are still children themselves because mm-hmm. where are we really given a chance to mature? There's so much fear in our culture that we don't, not many of us feel safe and secure in who we are. So we develop our own insecurities, neuroses, fears. And so we raise children with all this tension and anxiety and, and this pressure of this is all on me. And mm. sorry, I could just keep going, but that when it just shows that it's, it's like a, a big knot that we have right here where the way that we were, it's like, we're trying to make this like twisted contorted system work functionally and fluidly. And of course it's not right. So yeah. I love that someone like you is, is shedding light and doing the research for 30 years to show that there is evidence that there are other ways to do this and that it's not true that this is just the way it is and that we can shift back into. And, you know, I really think that we're shifting anyways, whether we like it or not, because there's also something greater than us, which is, you know, the cycles of nature and, and the planet earth. And that itself is showing us you can't just keep using resources as as if they're infinite and living however is best for you, the human species and neglecting every other species on the planet and the earth itself. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's exciting that more people are talking and you point out Alicia that in the 2020s, just more recently, we're beginning again to talk about this. Why is that? What's aside from, you said that, you know, this researcher is finally getting a bit of acknowledgement, but what else is happening right now that we're beginning the conversation that was sort of silenced in the past few decades? So the genetic data is a big part of it. All this coming out that, you know, now like there's been a huge um, leap forward in the ability to, to do genetic analysis on ancient skeletons, because it used to be that skeletons more than like 5,000 years old, which is right at the patriarchy threshold, weren't really, the DNA would degrade, but they just discovered that they could um, take DNA from the inner ear of the skeleton and that that doesn't degrade. So now they're able to discover lots of information about very ancient skeletons um, and be able to tell, are they men and women, men or women? Are they related to each other? So now all this genetic data is coming out that's showing that, you know, ancient, in ancient cultures, the women were related to each other and instead of the men, which means that they lived in a in a female centric society where the the men married in or or made it into the clan, and and now they're you know they're seeing this evidence that the Indo Europeans replaced the indigenous um, Europeans and Eurasians, um, which is a big story, and so that's attracting the attention of geneticists. But I also believe that history goes in cycles. And there are certain ideas whose times have come. So just in the last, you know, all those years that I was researching this, the topic was totally dead. And now I'm seeing all these articles about it coming up, whether it's about Indo-Europeans or the the Danube civilization is suddenly being talked about, which is one of the, the matriarchal civilizations, this one in Eastern Europe, which had populations of, they think, up to 40,000 people and um, very advanced, you know, large houses, you know, three-story houses, um, a a system of writing. Um, So all these things are being talked about. And then a book came out this February called Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule by Angela Staney, 
So that was, I was happy to see that come around. And then the book, The Dawn of Everything by David Wengro and David Graeber, an archeologist and an anthropologist, all about how early civilizations were much more egalitarian than we think. Like we're told Sumer is the first civilization. It's like, well, how are you defining civilization? Yeah, maybe Sumer, I mean, first of all, for the first 300 years, Sumer itself was egalitarian until it got the patriarchy virus, I call it. So the authors of The Dawn of Everything really put forth a lot of information about large egalitarian scale civilizations. So to take away this assumption that we have that once you start living in big groups and having specialization and trade, that you automatically get an oppressive bureaucracy. So I feel like it's an idea that whose time has come, but it's also a very tricky time politically when I believe we're seeing a huge backlash against feminism. We're seeing a lot of people move towards the right, towards Christianity. Some of my best friends just all of a sudden became Christians and I have nothing against Christians except for they usually aren't very friendly towards sexuality you know, and it, it seems to go along with the whole way of thinking that women should be the mothers and and there's nothing, I mean, being a mother is a wonderful choice that I completely support a woman choosing that. We just need to be aware of the fact that if you do choose to forego having a career developing your skills and you're dependent on somebody, that is a risk to be dependent on somebody else. So it is a beautiful and valid choice to to dedicate oneself to motherhood, but we should all have choices to do something else as well. So I, I hope this information is like a prophetic prophylactic against this sort of rising tide of, of patriarchal values that's coming back around. Yeah. And also the fact that, it, you know, yes, women can choose to be a mom and focus on that. Yet we also want the opportunity for women to step out into various sectors of society that could really use a feminine touch. And I don't know how you feel that, about this, Alicia, but sometimes I speak to the fact that when I think of the first few ways of feminism, they did some beautiful things, yet a lot of it was women trying to fit in as a man, right? Not right. being able to bring their feminine goddess, divine feminine traits, which is to me, I, I use the analogy of it's like, you know, if you think of the feminine as cool water and the masculine is more like hot water, we're needing a blend of both right now. We're in just hot water all the time right now. Everything's really scarcity and fear and intensity and focus on profit and gain all very masculine energy. And we need that cool water. We don't need women coming forward, trying desperately to have a voice, but the only way they can do it is to sound like a male. And that's the only way when you talk to women who have fought their way into politics or corporations or tech, it's tough because they have to sort of let go of any of their feminine to be seen. And I hope that's not true across the board. I don't want to make a false broad statement yet. I've experienced that and in my journey through my early careers. And so, and that's a big part of my podcast and the idea of women waken is women finally actually being able to show up as women and create new systems with that divine feminine essence and touch that isn't about violence and war and gaining power at all costs. To me, the feminine is that which honors life. You spoke to that a few times. Right mm. now, I feel that our world is so caught up in progress and profit and growth and gain that we don't think about 
whether or not we can attend to and honor that which is. So we devalue life and we say, it's fine. It'll figure itself out. It doesn't need, that's like having 500 kids and saying, it's fine. They don't need love and attention and safety and security. Just keep pumping them out because they'll be, you know, our workers someday. That's a crazy notion. Yet that's Mm. how we basically operate our whole society at this point. Totally. It's like the systems themselves need to be reformed so that it's not all about status. Like, you know, why does a CEO need to work hundred hour weeks? Why does, why do we need to be, what are we rushing towards? What's all, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it could be an option if you want to do that. And if a woman wants to do that, you know, great. But like, how can we feminize everything to the point where it can be kinder? And that is one piece of data it, uh, that I discovered is that female CEOs not only result in better employee satisfaction, but even a higher bottom line. So when, like when you prioritize the happiness of, of, of the people, they're going to produce for you. You know, they're not going to steal from you. And same thing for women mayors of cities. Um, they, they, they tend to do well and they tend to be more open to negotiation instead of power jockeying, not because men are bad, but just the way that we've been conditioned. And, you know, women grow up kind of taught to wait for each other to speak. Whereas when, when men speak, they kind of speak over each other. They, they go, ah, 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 and they kind of, you know, muscle in, you know? And so if, if we go along more with female socialization in politics, we might have a better result. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And I I do think that it's, you see both, right? There are some wonderful male CEOs. There's some female CEOs who have the same sort of toxic traits that some others do. And so that's why it's, I always clarify that it's energy, right? Feminine. I mean, I believe that women have more feminine energy, but men have some too. Women have masculine energy. I'm in my masculine a lot of the time. It's about balancing it and bringing it into a state that's harmonious because we, it's not like we don't need masculine or men. We absolutely do. They're wonderful. They, they can do things that I believe women don't do quite as attunely or quite as successfully. We need both, but right now it's become this power and this superiority idea that no men will always do it better. So please just step aside and let us do it. And I, what frustrates me is the lack of acknowledgement that it's not working when people say, no, it is. We're just trying to figure it out again. If we could figure it out, we would have by now, we would be living in a more balanced, harmonious, functional society. Our our systems and our society is not very functional. It's like a very, very poorly functioning machine that you're like, well, but it still works, but does it though? You know, (laughs) is the question. No, but who's happy? You know, they've, they've done so many studies that even there's not even that much. I mean, yes, people who have means and are, they have greater levels of, of happiness to a certain degree, but not as much as you would think life satisfaction as a whole is low, no matter how much you have or don't have. So why are we pushing for this? And it made me think, you know, you can see that the masculine is very prevalent in corporations and business because the problem with those is you look at something that like Google and Amazon, and you would think at a certain point, they could say, we did it. We are like one of the biggest companies in the world, but their emphasis is always going to be on where is our growth? 
how can you have infinite growth in a corporation? Like that's, where is the bar? Where, how do you ever stop? And that's where you lose, you know, you just keep pushing your employees to do more and more. And of course they're going to get burnt out and overwhelmed and feel like, when's it ever going to be enough? Right. Or on the scale of an economy of a country, like constant growth, it's not sustainable. Yes, absolutely. So it's, it can be frustrating, Alicia, I'm sure you feel, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you got into this work because if, when you look at this at the bigger scale, it really is hard to sit with and to accept and to not feel overwhelmed and a bit angry at it all that we've ended up here and that it just keeps getting pro promulgated as again, the way and that get over it because it's not going to change. I'm also a big believer that it's not about trying to get in there and destroy what is and to be anti, but it's more about creating yeah. what you want to see, right? Right. The Gandhi quote, be the change you want to see. If you want to see this shift, then emulate it yourself. That's where right. it starts. So right. how would you do that, Alicia? Like you're, how have you shift in your life? How have you done things where, where you feel in alignment with what you would like to see? Well, I guess... I'm constantly checking myself around this power thing. Like I'm, I'm in a position of power. I have people who work for me um, in my business and who um, are my tenants. And so I'm constantly checking myself like, yeah, I could mistreat them or be grouchy with them, or I don't, I don't need to make an effort to make them happy. Um, so but it's just my own personal value that I want to treat them like equals and, you know, treat them like humans and make their happiness important, you know? So that's important to me. And I guess in my own relationships and in the way I interact on social media, um, a lot of people might think I'm combative because I don't agree with a lot of things. And it's actually a really lonely path because to me, like, because I've been researching this for so long and it all makes so much sense, it's obvious, but it goes counter to where most people are, even the sort of conscious community, conscious sort of like sisterhood are very attached to sort of, I mean, this whole sort of monogamy versus polyamory thing, you know, um, a lot of women are very conditioned to think they need a man and then they need monogamy and, and, and I understand that. And I think monogamy is a beautiful choice, but I also just sort of like want to share that understanding why you're choosing monogamy and not out of default because it does go along with patriarchy. Um, still, you know, it's a beautiful choice and some couples do choose it and live happily ever after. It's just, it's pretty rare to find. So like in my own relationships, it's it's not a possibility to um, be submissive or to assume what my roles are going to be. So like, I think couples, like when I'm in a couple, it's like, be very explicit about our roles. Like, okay, if, if, if I'm going to do the dishes, you're going to take out the trash as opposed to just assuming what our roles will be based on our gender, you know? even though sometimes I think I've lost partners because they're like, no, you make the sandwich. You're the woman. It's like, that doesn't work for me. I'm not good at making sandwiches, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that that's what it's about is establishing, you know, your 
contract with somebody in terms of, Hey, these are my understandings and my, you know, preferences and what works for me, what works for you. And I think too often those go unspoken because just as you said, people just think I just need to find someone I need to be in relationship. There's a lot of stigma around single women. You know, I'm 37. I'm single. I've been single most of my life. I'm not one that rushes into relationships and I can't tell you many times I've been called a spinster or like, Oh no, like what you got to meet somebody. And that's fine. I know it's not coming from a place of judgment. I think people are react responding from their own fear. Right. And they're like, Oh gosh, I would hate to be 37 and single, but I don't see the value in partnering unless it's really aligned with your highest goods, both, both of you. And that it aligns with what both people want also that there's been some healing work done because We've all grown up in this culture that is not very healthy. And so we develop our own, you know, setbacks and insecurities. And we don't even, I think in a lot of ways, we don't even really know how to fully love or be loved because we have a lot of hangups because we've been told that who we are is not enough, right. Or not good enough. And so a lot of us have fears about being unlovable or not worthy of love. It's I'm a therapist. So I'm going off because I think that this is like, becomes sort of the human condition that's challenging to have healthy monogamous relationships. If that's what people want, that's fantastic. Just as you said, it can be a beautiful thing, but I think we need to look and be more honest and transparent mm-hmm. about the fact that it doesn't seem to be working so much across the board. And because are people going into it with the right reasons and intentions, or are they coming in with their specific expectations that oppress or force someone to kind of compromise in a, not in a healthy way, right? Compromise is always needed between two people, but not right. when you're, if you're compromising your core values and your exactly. desires, that's not going to work. And that's what always it makes me curious about monogamy is, you know, is it possible for two people to only ever want one another? I think I've seen it in other people. I think it can happen, but predominantly no. <laughs> so why are we making it like the, you know, sort of ultimate- right. Yeah. I mean, one of my chapters is, is on sexuality. And so I do go into the monogamy thing because it is very tied in with patriarchy and the data does not suggest that we are designed to, to just one, one, one person for the rest of our lives. And so knowing that I think we can design our relationships from the beginning knowing what we would do with collective real estate if we want other people or, you know, and just be realistic about that. And we can still hope that it happens, but um, writing the sex chapter was really one of the most entertaining parts. Um, So I, I, I appreciate that. And then, like you said, healing is huge. Like I'm kind of an amateur healer. I I do a kind of a somatic work where I help people get into trance using rhythm and breath. And, um, to me, that's like a really effective way to heal trauma, like, like removing it from the body through, um, frantic motions, rhythmic motions, which kind of calm the mind. And so like, because I believe that patriarchy is a trauma-based system, um, I think it's been suppressed actually to, to, release trauma because patriarchy wants us as an institution, it is, it is perpetuated through can the constant trauma, all the sexual abuse generation after generation compounded. So the first thing we all need to do is, is, you know, heal our own trauma. 
and only then can we really be in a, in a healthy relationship. Otherwise, it's a series of trauma responses, you know, and codependency. And so I often rant about, like you said, the the like this the couple complex. I call it. It's like, you know, the, the, I wish that we could all just be human beings, and and not be like couples or singles, you know, because I've been single now for a long time. I was with someone for ten years, but now um, I'm single and I, you know, I don't know if I need to be with someone. So it's like, I would only choose that if, if it was really better than, than what I'm doing now, you know? So I'd love to see that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know we're pretty deep into this to be asking this question, Alicia, but I feel like it's important. Can we, would you give your definition? Cause it, it's become a, you know, a big buzzword that a lot of people just immediately when they hear it, turn away from, how do you define mm. the patriarchy? Because there's a lot of ideas behind it. And then also you speak to how it doesn't really work and it, it's both men and women are affected by it. Can you also give some insight into that? Thanks for asking that. That would have been good to start out with because <laughs> patriarchy has like, it, you know, it's become kind of a buzzword and now it's become, now there's this backlash against it because maybe like a lot of people use it, overuse it or something or, or, or use it as an insult or it's become this idea that it has to do with, with hating or blaming men. Men are not to blame. Like we don't know exactly how it started, but maybe it was a society wide thing where in a time of trauma, both men and women turn towards aggressive leaders. But I define it as a system of power over where people are born to be in positions of, of higher status than other people, as opposed to a meritocracy, which um, this new genetic data that we're getting shows that before 3500 BC, the most prominent graves, the most prominent leaders, first of all, were women, but also weren't inherited. It wasn't an inherited position. People became prominent because they had skills to offer, or back then it, it had a lot to do with, with um, priestesses and, you know, people who had um, access to the divine, you know, um, psychic abilities. So with patriarchy, it, it's about a, a inherited status hierarchy, or some people are born better than others, whether because of gender, which was the original split, which then became sort of the, the framework for class hierarchies, ethnic hierarchies, um, and that always goes hand in hand with violence and, and war. Definitely. So it affects, impacts both men and women. Both men and women. So uh, I do believe that women have gotten the shittier end of the stick, really, a little bit. And, and that's changed a lot in the last 40 years, thanks to feminism with all of its faults. And it's been infiltrated and, you know, had, had a lot of the issues, but like, it has changed things vastly for women in the past 40 years to where we're now able to like walk around at night by ourselves and, you know, get all the jobs. And I mean, two generations ago, women couldn't even go to Harvard, the Harvard library, you know, um, Maria Gumbutas wasn't able to, but it's affected men um, almost as much because it's kind of the conditioning tells men that they can't be vulnerable they shouldn't develop their relationships with other men or even prioritize their relationships. So a lot of men go around feeling um, alone and like they can't um, express their pain. 
And so they suffer alone. You know, men have really high rates of suicide. Um, whereas at, at least, I mean, the sort of like the patriarchal privilege that women have is to be conditioned to prioritize our relationships, to be able to be vulnerable, to be able to express our emotions. And that's kind of what, what we get from it. And men, you know, they, they, they have this huge pressure to be providers and, 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 you know, to do all the sort of hard jobs and to go to war and, and all of that is, is, you know, a huge stress on them. Absolutely. And of course, you know, that you hear from a lot of men is that they don't feel safe expressing their emotions or their feelings because there's so much messaging around that's not manly, that that's, you know, you're a baby, you shouldn't, you should be able to push through feelings and emotions. And we all men and women alike are, you know, have feelings, have emotions that are meant to be expressed. That's, that's the biggest part of being a human being is exploring feelings through your experiences, through your relationships, through life. And if you can't do that, then of course, you're going to disconnect from life a little bit, which is, I think what we find in some men who are just focused on the external, right? Where it's like, well, if I have this powerful job and I'm seen as valued and powerful, then I can push out the emotions and I can forget that there's this part of me that just wanted to be loved. Cause let's be real. Everybody at the end of the day just wants love. That's where we're, that's we're made of. That's what life is, is love. But in the patriarchy, it's basically saying it. I mean, it almost it flat out minimizes love, right? It says, Oh, love. What a woo thing. What a, you know, like girly Girl. thing about we're really busy here. We have to fight wars. We have to kill people. We have to fight for our power. We've been doing that for so long, as you know, right? For so long, it's been like, no, no, no. It's not about taking care of the people. It's about making sure that we don't get conquered, that we get to conquer others. And it ha- hasn't changed, right? And that's, I know that's why you wrote this book and why you shed light on this is you're saying it's not true. Just because people in power say something does not make it true. And I think that's something that we've disconnected from when we hear it on the news or we hear it from presidents or leaders of countries, we say, oh, okay, well, I guess no. And I think the more women who start moving in their own direction and building and creating based on what we think could work is going to be powerful and is going to be a turning point because then people will actually see, right? Don't listen Mm. to what I say, watch what I do, right? Mm. Start doing it and start showing that wow, this works. Just as you said, companies that are now led by women CEOs are seeing some shifts, right? Where they're having more employee retention, higher rates of employee employee satisfaction. It's because they're being attended to, they're being seen. They're not just being pushed as workhorses. Again, not across the board. I'm not saying all women leaders or CEOs are perfect. Right. Not by any stretch. But there are some who are bringing some of that into these spaces. And I think the more we have, the more momentum this can take. And I don't know about you, Alicia, but you know, change can happen pretty fast. Mm. I mean, you think of like the fall of Rome and how something you thought that was never going to lose power suddenly was just decimated. So Mm. I'm not saying it's going to happen that way, but change can happen quickly when enough people start to think in a different way. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's been an enormous shift between my generation and my mother's, you know, it wasn't really an option for her to choose not to be a mother. It really wasn't a possibility. Like you just did that, you know, back then. And, um, and, and now I've, I've made the conscious choice not to be a mother because she didn't really know how to do it. And so I didn't really learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. And, and so this stops with me, you know? And so it's, it's, really an enormous shift between 
in one generation, you know. So it can happen. History goes in in sudden leaps, and and it's really about, you know, joining together with the men. That I mean, that's my main message. Is it's not like you know men versus women. It's it's like how do we join together against the system that oppresses all of us? You know. Yeah. And now we see a lot of men who are really like dropping out of society. Um, like I think like right now, like almost twice as many women are graduating from college than men. And I think that's because men feel useless because the patriarchy is crumbling, but there isn't really anything to replace it yet. And so men feel like, oh, well, our role as providers, now women are competing with us and they're actually like doing really well. And women, after 5,000 years of not being able to go to school, are like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna go get it. And, and now men are like, wait, what are we supposed to do? Like, you know, to some degree, it's, it's like this thing of like, well, if girls are competing and they're as good as me, then they have their conditioning to feel bad if they're being beaten by a girl. You know, that's the patriarchal conditioning. So they're just dropping out, you know. But it's like how, like, you just want to encourage our brothers to, you know, find their power and their strength, but not a power over. So like how to be strong, you know, and not, not like a wet noodle, but not, not, not be a doormat, but not be a douchebag, you know? <laughs> yes. A very important <laughs> distinction. Yeah. And I think that that, it comes back to two fundamentals about human existence, which is we yearn to know who we are and what our purpose is. Both mm. of those allow us to thrive in a healthy way. And I think mm. we have a strong disconnect from both of those. And that's mm. why I am drawn towards podcasting and speaking because, and communication is I believe it starts with conversations, people being able mm. to speak openly and honestly about their experiences, what they're feeling, what they're needing. Because when you speak that way, you open up the door to empathy and understanding, right? If we really understood someone's experience, we could say, okay, I hear you. Here's mine. What can we do with this? Uh, I think, unfortunately, we've been pushed so far that some people are almost vehemently just focused on their personal gain because they've lost touch with the idea that someone would ever actually hear them or listen to them or care about them. So it will mm. take time. But again, I think that slowly all of us yearn to be loved and to be understood and to connect with other humans. So I think mm. it starts with conversation, with books, with bringing light and awareness to these topics, because the truth is that we're all desperate to talk about this. We're all just waiting for this one person to be like, hey, everybody, this doesn't work. Can we stop doing it this way? And we'll be like, oh, thank God they said it because I'm so done with this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and you're saying it and I'm saying it. So it's starting, the shift is happening, um, but it, you know, it does, there's, it's complex and has a lot of components yet it actually isn't. It's, it does ultimately end up being pr pretty simple that we want to know who we are and have a purpose and that we, and we in no way, you know, I, at least I don't, and I, I don't think you feel this way, want to push out men and say, you guys can't, you don't have a place here. That's the only way the, the analogy I love, because there's a lot of, you know, spiritual sectors that speak to the same conundrum we find ourselves in, which says right now it's as if we're an Eagle, but we're only using one uh, wing and it's the masculine wing. We need both wings together flying to really soar as humans, as beings in our societies. So it's not about pushing anybody out. It's about saying, Hey, can you make space for us so we can join together? Exactly. There's still a huge gap 
um, I forget the name of the book, but but uh, a book recently came out um, proving that there's a huge gap in the way men and women are still perceived. Teachers let boys talk twice as much in school. Men talk twice as much in films, you know, in 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 groups, in meetings, in corporate boardrooms, and and women are generally treated as not as competent. And when somebody treats you as not as competent, you're going to perceive yourself that way, and that's going to actually affect what you're able to achieve and learn. So when people ask me like, well, what do you mean we're still living in patriarchy? Like, like women can do anything. And to some degree that's true, but there still is a gap in, in the, the amount of respect. And, and that comes from both women and men. So it's an, you know, this women internalize the same conditioning and maybe treat other women the same way. Like, Oh no, I'm going to choose a man to, you know, do my roof because a man's going to know better, you know? So, and, and the best way to change that is just through education to point out that women have achieved, can achieve in every area. And so if we want that and, and, and we don't have to, and it's okay to just be as well, or just, or choose motherhood or choose, you know, to be a priestess, you know, we don't have to be a lawyer or doctor to, you know, be important and, and be, be just valued. Yeah, absolutely. We, we deserve to be valued. Everybody deserves to be valued. But I, I will say, you know, that speaking this way can sound idealistic. Again, I, I do think it's just inevitable that we will find ourselves in a more balanced state. That's my belief. But right now it's frustrating because when you just said that, I can't tell you how many times they'll have, I'll try to have these conversations with a man and they'll be like, oh yeah, that's like, that's really cute. This little idea you have like that you want to, you know, yeah, that's beautiful. That's really wonderful. But then they're going to go right back to how they've always done things because they don't want to give up what they have. They don't want they don't actually want things to change. I think there's some men that are totally open to it and willing to see this this shift in dynamics. But I think most um, are very set in their ways and are used to being thought of as superior, as more competent, as the one who actually get the job done. And so it's going to be interesting to see what can actually play out that will enable this true shift where it's not like, because we can't force it either. If we try to force it, oh, it's just going to exactly. go back. You can't force change. Force no. change. It's not it human nature. Works. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta just be natural, yeah. which is slow, you know, seeing like, Hey, actually I tried out those female chiropractors and they cracked me just as well, you know? So like yeah. I recommend them and, and, you know, just, slowly raising consciousness as opposed to, because right now there is kind of a tendency in the left to try to force types of change and it's causing a big backlash. You Absolutely. know, I completely agree with that. I completely agree. And I truly think that it's, it's almost, I, I often use the analogy of someone like an addict who finally needs to get sober. They hit rock bottom. Mm. Sometimes it takes mm. what it takes. And I think when enough men realize that, wow, you know, this actually really isn't working and we keep mm. trying the same thing and it's still not working. Maybe we could try something else because then it's not coming from like, Oh yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll go to this meeting at our corporation about giving women more of a you know position and whatever it is where they feel they have to do it again, forced, but they're going to be like, okay, well let's talk. What, what actually could be a solution that's more realistic and that could actually help make things more functional. I think we're going to get there. I don't think we're there yet. I think that too much, again, it's like men will hear you out, but then say, that's never going to happen. Cute idea. Nice idea. But we're going to keep doing things as they are. 
but I also believe that it's, it is eventual. And there's a lot of male feminists too. Like I've, I've encountered them. Some of my biggest fans are men. Good. And they recognize that when women are, are at the center, um, things are better for the men too. So back in the matriarchal times, men weren't oppressed. They were relaxed. Like I visited a bunch of, of matrilineal tribal people around the world, the ones that remain up in the hinterlands of civilization. And the men are really relaxed. They're happy. They, they fought. Like the, the biggest thing, that the most mind-blowing thing I, I learned when researching this book was that the collapse of the Bronze Age probably had a lot to do with the battle of the sexes. The shift from matriarchy to patriarchy in the Bronze Age was what they were fighting these wars about. And wars killed like 90% of the people and brought the, the Dark Ages in. And, and the Sea Peoples, who basically are credited with attacking all the Bronze Age empires and bringing it down, were these matriarchal Amazons, these women warriors. So like... But men were also fighting to preserve their matriarchal way of life because they understood that in the patriarchal empires around them, people were getting their noses sliced off and, you know, terrible things were happening. So, yeah. you know, some men get it. And conversely, a lot of women are really fighting on the side of patriarchy because they're so conditioned or maybe they're insecure and they you know, they're insecure about women having choices. If they didn't feel they had choices, they want to limit it. You know, toxic femininity has definitely been a huge factor in my life in the way that women have held me down. You know, female competition has really pummeled me. Mm -hmm. I feel like because I'm free of so many patriarchal conditionings, I get penalized for that, you know, by women who are still stuck in that. So it really is an institution um, and not, you know, about the men. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why ultimately we're all in this together. And mm -hmm. I, I think we're, again, we're still feeling it out. There's still sort of baked in competition, women with women, men with men, men and women. It's, and I think when we're able to, again, kind of release some of our fear, we'll be able to come together more and support one another and support the bigger picture pursuits, but that's going to take time. So I, again, we just do what we can in our, in our time. I mean, in this lifetime, what kind of change will we see? Well, it could actually be pretty significant. I mean, look at 2020 has already been a powerful decade and it's only the third year of it. So, you know, I'm so grateful for people like you, Alicia, who are doing this amazing work to actually get the facts down and do the research and shed light on history and say, listen, like this is actually the stories we're told are not always accurate of what truly has happened, how things have unfolded. So thank you so much. This book is incredible. I encourage everybody to pick it up, check it out, read it. And then there's so many other books that came before it and that will come after that are so aligned with this. So you can just dive right in and be a part of this beautiful pursuit of offering that there is another way and we don't have to keep doing it like this. And that in fact, we haven't always done it like this. That's not actually the truth that it's always been this way and always will be. Well, thank you so much for making these conversations happening and bringing all this information out to the world. It's been really great to speak with you. Yeah, so beautiful speaking with you. And Alicia, if people would like to learn more about you or find your book, what is the best way to connect with you? 
Uh, my website is beforewar.com. And at the top, it, it shows the different versions you can get the ebook or the black and white or the more expensive color pictures. There's a lot of graphs and figures and stuff. And on Before War, there's also a lot of information. I have a lot of posted relevant articles that are coming out on these topics and a bibliography and a blog. So yeah, beforewar.com. Fantastic. All right, Alicia. Well, thank you again. And I'm so glad to meet a fellow traveler on this path that it, I really do think it's going to be an exciting couple of years, decades, lifetime where we're going to see some changes. So glad to be in it with you. Oh, maybe so. Thank you. <laughs> that wraps up our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening to Women Waken. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and come back for more. If you'd like to connect with the Women Waken community, you can find us on Instagram at Women Waken. And if you follow Women Waken, you can get a free tarot card reading if you just send a DM. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and don't forget to let your unique light shine into this world. <laughs>